friends. Good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, this is my first time here for 2023, so I've not seen many of you, so happy new year. Uh, now, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Ken, and I serve as the pastor of our Bridgeport Church, so really honored to be here. And if you are new with us here, on occasion, myself and your pastor, Pastor Rafe, uh, we will share teaching between our locations. So right now I'm here at South Loop, and your pastor is serving my folks, I'm sure, very well uh, at the Bridgeport Church. So thank you for allowing him to do that. Now, today, we continue back in our sermon series in 1 Corinthians that we started back in the fall, in September, and we took a little break during Christmas, but now we're back in it. And the topic we're going to start off covering today will be around singleness and dating. Now, a book that has helped in my preparation, and I think a good resource for your further growth and learning, is a book by Sam Alberry called Seven Myths to Singleness. Let me just show you a picture of this book here. I found this book to be biblical, practical, and relevant, and Sam illustrates much of his points in his own calling and experience with singleness. So that's my recommendation to you if you want to keep learning about this topic. So with that, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read a good chunk of verses for us here to kind of get a scope of what Paul's talking about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, let's go first to verses 6 and 8. Verses 6 and 8. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now let's jump to verse 17, and I'm going to read from 17 to 40 here. Paul continues on and says this, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my role in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do not marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they're not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they are not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. 
I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy and abiding spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity by having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think, too, I have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us as we begin. God, we thank you so much for your word. Your word gives us direction. It gives us truth, gives us hope, gives us purpose. And God, we thank you that your word speaks to difficult and relevant topics. So as we talk about singleness today, we pray that you would guide us in understanding. Give us a positive vision of what it means to be single in Christ. Have your spirit work amongst us as married and single people to be the kind of community that can thrive together in Christ. Have your way amongst us and show us more of the beauty and power of the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. You know, where we left off in 1 Corinthians was that Paul gave an extended teaching about the beauty of marriage and also the limitations of marriage. And we briefly mentioned that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God because marriage and singleness are beautiful pictures of our union with Christ. That marriage gives a picture of our future union with Christ and our singleness is a reminder that we can experience intimacy with Christ now. You know, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus taught that there will be no, no marriage in the new creation. Well, why not? Isn't marriage the ultimate experience of love and intimacy? You know, won't we be sad not to be married in heaven? You know, won't I be sad that I see my wife Susan in heaven and I just kind of walk past her and say, hey, what's up? And you know what I mean? Like, won't that be really sad? No, because we will have great intimacy with God. As Christians, marriage is not the end goal. Union with Christ is. So it's with this theological framework, we focus on singleness, and I want us to have a positive vision of singleness. And let me just give you three reasons why. First, the majority of adults in our country are single. And this is a new development. For most of American history, the majority of adults were married, but just in the last few years, it has tilted to where the majority of adults are single, and certainly like a city like Chicago, that majority is even higher. 
the current average age of marriage is 30 for men and 28 for women. And what this tells us is that singleness is a longer and more formative season in people's lives. So as a church, we have to know what it means to be disciples of Christ who are single and satisfied in God. Secondly, we need a positive vision of singleness because singleness applies to all of us. Consider this. We are all single once, and most of us will be single twice. So when we talk about singleness, we're not just talking about the 22-year-old who just graduated from college and is learning the dating scene, but we're also talking about widows. We're talking about those who are divorced, single parents, same-sex attracted Christians who choose celibacy, those who've experienced trauma or abuse who are not ready for relationships. Singleness affects many people in many different ways. And finally, we should have a positive vision of singleness because Scripture has a positive vision of singleness. And this is where there's been so much misunderstanding about singleness in the church. So what I want to do is walk through our verses by confronting four myths about singleness. And at the end, I'll briefly talk about dating. But here are the four myths that I want to get after. The first myth, singleness is a curse. Secondly, singleness defines you. Third myth, singleness hinders ministry. And then finally, singleness means isolation, okay? So the first myth, singleness is a curse. Now, in general, singleness can often be perceived as someone who is incomplete or abnormal. Uh, for example, when you consider our most famous fairy tales, Cinderella's life was less than ideal until the glass slipper fit. Snow White was never fully alive until she had true love's kiss. The beast was a monster until Belle fell in love with him. Sleeping Beauty was asleep until she experienced the hero's affection. Ariel, the little mermaid, could only be human if she was loved by a prince. Do you see that since our childhood, we have been told that marriage means happily ever after, but singleness Oh, you don't want to be single. That's not good. That's bad. And frankly, if I can just say, the church has failed miserably in dignifying singleness because we often put an overemphasis on marriage and the nuclear family, and thus single people can feel like second-hand citizens in the kingdom of God. Paul, in our verses, confronts this lie. Now, Paul right now is writing to the church in Corinth, which is in Greece. And in Greek thinking, marriage was held as a high ideal. Have you ever heard the term soulmate? That term soulmate did not come from the Bible. It didn't even come from your youth pastor. It's actually Greek thinking, specifically from Plato in his Symposium of Love, that in that he talks about the theory of creation and how all humans were created with two bodies. Let me just show you a picture of what he was talking about here that these were bodies that were connected back to back, facing outward, two bodies that were one. But what happened is that these bodies tried to count, climb Mount Olympus to where the gods resided, and as punishment, Zeus split them in half. And ever since that day, everyone is incomplete, looking for their other half, looking for their soulmate. This is Greek thinking. 
So it's in this ancient culture, and just like our culture today, they were deeply shaped into thinking that being single means that you're incomplete, that you're cursed. But look at what Paul says in his Greek context about singleness, verses 6 to 8 again. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul says that singleness is good. It's a gift from God. This was radical in Greek thinking, and it's also radical in Jewish thinking. Jews were expected to marry at a very young age by their early teens, and marriage was everything in Jewish culture. Marriage was your financial security. It was your cultural honor. So a man without a family would have been seen as a failure, and a woman without a family would have been seen as an outcast. So Paul knows all this. He knows the Greek culture. He knows the Jewish culture. He knows all the pressure that is being put on single people to be married, and he says, Singleness is good. It's a gift of God's grace. Now, I need to acknowledge that there is nothing that single people hate more than hearing a married man tell them that singleness is a gift. Okay? I get it. You hear it. You cringe. And I know why. I know why. Because oftentimes, that word gift is used to minimize your pain and loneliness. I do not want to do that to you. I want to acknowledge that singleness can be very, very difficult. It can be lonely. It can be very hard to come home to no one, very hard to come home and not have someone to process the small things and the big things of life. You're getting older and you feel like the door of opportunity is getting smaller and smaller. Singleness is hard. And I want to acknowledge that. But I also want you to wrestle with this. I want you to grapple with with this gap between what Scripture says of singleness, that it is something good, and yet our experience says that it's really difficult and oftentimes unwanted. What I want to say to you is that somehow there is a unique grace in being single. And this grace is not in spite of some of these difficulties, but actually experiencing God through these difficulties. God has something good for you in singleness, and I think it's ultimately about how you can experience God. Singleness is a unique way in deepening your trust in God and experiencing deeper intimacy with God. So in this way, singleness is a gift, but it does not mean that it is an easy gift. You know, the reality is that God gives us a lot of gifts that sometimes we don't just one. And, and, and it requires great responsibility. You know, Scripture talks about giving as a gift or prophecy or mercy, and these gifts often don't feel very good. For example, if you have the gift of prophecy, very likely you don't have many friends in your life. Mercy to those who are hurting is very emotionally draining. Giving generously means putting limits on our lives and also on our comforts. So I would say that even though singleness is a gift, it doesn't mean that it needs to be a desired gift or a forever gift. But even though you didn't ask for it and it doesn't make you happy, you do have to receive it with faith 
and trust God as your Father who cares for you and knows what is best for you and gives us good gifts. Here's the second myth. Singleness defines you. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And he, Paul repeats this principle, this idea again in verses 20 and 24 by saying, whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You know, Paul's saying here is that when you become a Christian, remain where you're at in terms of your relational status. Now, he's not saying that this is your status permanently, but you don't need to freak out. If you're single, you don't need to marry right away. If you're betrothed, you don't need to break off your engagement. If you are married, especially to an unbeliever, you don't need to separate. Now, how could Paul say this? It's because your relational status does not define you. In verses 17 to 24, Paul illustrates this in two different ways. One is that he talks about circumcision, which is about your ethnic status. And then he talks about being a bondservant, which is about your cultural status. And his main point in both these illustrations is that your marital status, your ethnic status, your cultural status, it ultimately does not define you. Christ defines you. Now, it doesn't mean that these other things don't matter. They do matter. For example, your ethnicity deeply matters to God, but it doesn't define you. It's not the most important thing about you. It's not the core of who you are. If you're a Christian, what defines you is your new life in Christ. You are a child of God. You're an heir of the kingdom. That is your status. Now, this is important because I think many of us look to marriage to save us. You know, so often as single people, we compare our life to the happiness of married folks that we're on social media and we see the married couples, you know, walking through the apple orchard, frolicking in the, you know, with their flannels, matching flannels. And then we look at our lives and how alone we are. We compare the highlights of marriage to the difficult times of singleness. So it becomes very easy to idolize marriage. If I were married, then I'll be satisfied. If I was married, then I'll be secure. Then I'll be happy. Then everything would be fine. This is idolizing marriage. We're looking to marriage for something that we can only find in God. True intimacy and satisfaction and security and joy can only come from God. You know, a lesson married folks learn very fast is that marriage rarely ever fixes your problems. For example, marriage doesn't make lust go away. If you're struggling with pornography before you're married, very likely you will continue to struggle with pornography after you're married. We all need to recognize that a man or a woman can be a great spouse, but they will never, ever be a good savior. The only relationship that will save you is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So in that movie, Jerry Maguire, when Jerry says, you complete me, that is not romance. That is idol worship. Singleness does not define you or complete you. Jesus does. Here's a third myth. Singleness hinders ministry. Now, if singleness is a sign of God's punishment on your life, if it's a sign of immaturity or if, it's, if singleness is just a season of waiting for something better, 
then you know what? The right conclusion is that as a single person, you're not fit to serve God. Because how can a single person possibly shepherd or lead married people or parents? Or, or, you know, if you're not married, can you really be mature enough, you know, to lead? Now, let me just say, it's understandable that when you are married or if you're a parent, it makes it easier to identify what these seasons of life but to say that if you are single, thus you are not useful to the kingdom, someone better tell God because I don't think he knows. What we see in scripture is over and over again the dignity of singleness. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah was single. Joseph was single. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and John the Baptist were single. You have women who were single, Lydia, Mary Magdalene. And of course, the greatest argument for the dignity of singleness is Jesus himself. God used all of them for his kingdom. Singleness is not, is not a hindrance to ministry. It's only a hindrance. It's only a hindrance to ministry if we believe that our human experience is greater than divine wisdom. But if we understand singleness as a grace from God, that it is Christ who defines us and not my relational status, then there is a godly purpose to my singleness. And Paul even says in our verses that singleness is an advantage. Look at verse 32 to 35 again. Let me just read this again. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul's point here is very simple. Being married isn't better than singleness, but being married is more complex. Your attention is divided. But singleness allows for greater undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, once again, I don't want to dismiss the struggles that come with singleness. And this doesn't mean that there are no advantages in marriage. But the point of this passage is that there are advantages to singleness. Specifically, I think in two areas, time and flexibility. So first, single people in general, not a rule, but in general, have more time. They're less divided in their responsibilities as compared to married people. You know, for example, you know, every time when church is over, you know, I'm small talking, just mingling with you guys. And you guys are coming up to me and saying, hey, Kenson, you know, have you seen this? Have you seen the latest movie? You know, have you, have you, have you binged on this Netflix show? You know, and I'm like, no, but have you watched Encanto 27 times? Because I have, I have. I watch movies that my kids want to watch. And this is a very silly example, but as a married man, so much of my time goes towards my wife and my children. So having the time to serve and to learn and to travel, it really can be an advantage to single people. Another advantage closely associated with time is flexibility. 
If you're single, it is likely, not a rule, but it is likely that you're more able to respond to someone who's in need right away. Or when it comes to picking up and moving, maybe you hear a need that's going on in another city or in another part of the world. Maybe you feel called to be part of a church plant. You have more flexibility to do that as opposed to someone who has to think through uprooting their family and their kids' school. So singleness in general gives us the advantage of time and flexibility. So if this is the case, how then are we to use it? Verse 35, it's to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Your singleness is to the Lord. And when Paul calls singleness a gift, this is the same Greek word that Paul uses about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And what we'll learn in a couple of weeks is that spiritual gifts is given by God for the common good. In other words, God gives us the gift of singleness to benefit others. Singleness does not have to be a season of frustration, but of great kingdom fruitfulness. Single friends, do not waste your singleness. Use it for the glory of God to love others and to love God with your whole being. And here's the fourth myth. Singleness means isolation. Verse 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. That's kind of like a mic drop that, you know, I have the spirit of God, right? I'm an apostle or whatever. So what Paul says here is really powerful. It's about widows and if they should remarry. Now, it's really important to understand that in this culture here, widows were the most vulnerable people in society. Widows who were disconnected from a family, they couldn't provide for themselves, they had no protection, they had no community. And Paul says here that if you are a widow, you're free to remarry. But I actually think it's better for you to remain single. Now, once again, marriage and singleness is, singleness is both a gift from God, but what Paul is saying to widows here is that you don't need marriage to protect you. You don't need marriage to be cared for. You don't need marriage to be provided for. You can thrive in a culture where widows are marginalized. You can thrive as a single person. How? It's because the church is your family. And as a family, we are called to share with one another and to be there for each other as brothers and sisters who have been adopted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that as a church, we would function as this family, that we would have married and single people following Christ together, acknowledging the advantages and disadvantages of both seasons of life, and encouraging one another, building one another up, meeting one another's needs. You know, in Mark chapter 3, someone comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are asking for you. And Jesus looks around at his disciples and says, Look, they are my mother and brothers. Jesus is teaching us that our spiritual family outlasts even our biological family. Singleness does not mean isolation because we are adopted into the family of God. 
So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and here are some of the things that Paul says about singleness. Shall we talk about dating? Now, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't talk about dating at all. The Bible's not even aware of dating because it's a modern, modern invention. In scripture, what was known in that time and also in all ancient cultures is what you would have is arranged marriages, is where the parents and uncles and aunts and grandparents, everyone would have a say in who you were being, who, who you're going to marry. This idea of dating actually didn't come until the early 20th century with the invention of the automobile. Let me explain some history lesson, a history channel lesson here, right? So prior to the automobile, if you wanted to get to know a woman, you would have to go to her house in the living room where mommy and daddy was. So everyone was involved in the courtship. Everyone was involved as you're trying to get to know her, talk, spend some time with her. There was no like private time. Like it was just you and everyone else in the family to get to know her. But with the creation of the automobile, it now created the opportunity where you can take her outside of her family to get to know her in a personal way, right? That, in the last 100 years, this has completely revolutionized in America how we handle dating and marriage. And now with online apps and all that stuff, that's, that's like a whole different wave of things to consider. But the Bible does not know what dating is. And I want to say this because I want to be very clear. There are no 10 commandments to courtship. So everything that I'm about to say to, about dating here is not thus saith the Lord, okay? I can't say that. I do believe that I'm going to try to give biblical wisdom here. But if you don't like what I'm saying, we can agree to disagree here, all right? But I'm going to try my very best to draw out some biblical principles and to apply it to dating. The most important thing that I can say about dating is that you must be able to answer what is the purpose of dating. And this is what I think. Dating is not a game. It's not just for fun. It's not a cure for boredom, you know, by swiping left or right. It's not a short-term fix. This is not dating. What I believe dating is, is dating is the pursuit of a potential partner in marriage. It's the discerning process between two people to see if they could be husband and wife. And the reason you need to know the purpose of dating is because if you don't decide beforehand that what the purpose of dating is, you might end up in a relationship that is not good for you. That you know that this is a person that you don't want to spend forever with and you don't want to marry them, but you've now created such deep emotional ties that you're not sure how to untangle all of it and it becomes incredibly painful for you and for everyone involved. Before you date, know your purpose and it should be the pursuit of a potential partner in marriage. Now let me give you some principles about dating. First, date someone who shares your spiritual foundation. Now, at one level, this is just practical. In marriage, you're going to make some of the biggest decisions in your life together, and if you disagree about these important things of life, it is going to be very difficult. Things like, you know, how to spend our money, how, how, you know, how to spend our time, you know, should, you know, should we serve, how, how to raise our kids, should we even have kids? So practically, it just makes sense to share the same spiritual foundation with someone that you would date. But this isn't just practical, it's also biblical. 
2 Corinthians 6.14 says for us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, a yoke is a wooden frame that you would bind two ox together so that they're going in the same direction, carrying the same weight. In Christian marriage, we're being bound together in the same direction, living for the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, don't be unequally yoked with somebody who has a completely different direction and different foundation than you. Now, if this is true of marriage, and if dating is the pursuit of discerning a partner in marriage, you should date someone who shares your spiritual foundation. Now, I know that there's at least several people here who are probably thinking, you know, but I'm dating him to lead him to Christ. No, no, okay? Jesus will save him. It's not your job. You pray for him, and you pursue the Lord. Here's the second principle. Stop looking for the perfect partner. Some of you right now, you have this list that's hanging on your wall right now of a future spouse, and it is just plain unrealistic. Not even Jesus committed, okay? It's unrealistic. And much of this is shaped by all the unrealistic standards before us. We've grown up, you know, with so many images that are digitally filtered to define what beauty is. We've grown up watching pornography, and it's led to unrealistic expectations of our bodies and sex. I want to encourage you, put godly characteristics above physical characteristics. Too many of us are missing the opportunity to meet great people who love Jesus because we start with the superficial over the supernatural. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that looks don't matter, but they don't last. Gravity always wins. So skin will sag. But do you know what will last? Godly character will last. Here's the third principle. Pursue dating with honor and respect. Now, let me talk to the men for a little bit here. Guys, there's a bunch of amazing, godly, beautiful women in this church. They love the Lord and they are so gifted. Pursue them. Pursue them. And I want you to do so in a way that is honoring, dignifying, and respectful. Now, I know that oftentimes we're thinking to ourselves, well, you know, am I really allowed to ask someone out in the church? I don't know. It feels kind of icky. Should I really do that? I believe that it's a great place. For sure, church is better than a bar. For sure, it's better than Tinder. The church is a great place to find a spouse, so it's okay to ask someone out in the church, and it's also okay to say no. To pursue someone with honor and respect, it means to be clear about your intentions. So, for example, guys, if there's a woman in here that you're interested in, be clear with your intentions. Go up, go up to them and say, hey, you know, I would really like to spend some time with you, you know, just, you know, one-on-one if we can grab a cup of coffee. But make sure you leave a way out and just say, like, hey, but if you don't want to, it's all good, you know, we don't have to make this thing weird, you know. But if you want to, like, it'd be great, you know. You know, like, you do stuff like that. But be clear about your intentions. Don't be passive-aggressive. Don't beat around the bush. Let her know what you want to do, you know? And if she says no, receive it. But if she says yes, and the first date goes well, then go back again and say, hey, you know, well, I had a really great time that first date. You know, I would love to get you to know you some more. Can we have dinner? But give her a way out. But hey, you know what? If you don't want to and you don't feel the same way, it's, a, guys, I'm not giving a script, okay? Figure it out, okay? But, but you know what I'm talking about, right? When we go about this stuff, when you go about this, treat each other with tenderness and graciousness, Respect and honor also means this, honoring them and God 
with physical boundaries and sexual purity. Before they are your boyfriend or girlfriend, they are first your brother and sister in Christ. We are called to love them, not lust them. And here's the difference. Lust is using another person for our own good. Love is giving yourself for the good of another. I want us to be a church where we can have a dating culture, where we can pursue one another, and if it doesn't work, we can look back and say, they treated me with the utmost respect and dignity. I can speak highly of that person. That is a good thing and a God-honoring thing. And here's the fourth principle. When it comes to dating, don't bail on community. All of us have had this friend who gets a boyfriend or girlfriend and we never see them again until they break up and they pretend nothing's ever happened, right? First off, that's just really annoying. But even more so, we need community in the process of dating and discernment. We need to be aware of the infatuation of dating and how blind it makes us to concerns and dangers. So we need to have friends who are close to us, who love the Lord and who love us, and we need to welcome accountability and ask them. Don't wait for them to find us. We seek them out and we tell them that, hey, I'm interested in this person. What do you think about them? Do you think I'm in a good place to be dating? We need community as a part of the discernment process. You know, we've all heard the phrase, don't go to the grocery store if you're hungry. Don't start dating if your soul is hungry. If you're, relationally, if you're not relationally healthy and you're feeling desperate, you probably won't make the most discerning calls in dating. Don't bail on community. Lean into community in the dating process. Now, let me close with this. I have said a lot about this topic here. Let me just close with this. Elizabeth Elliot, a teacher, an author, a missionary, said this about her experience with singleness as a widow. She writes this, let me show it to you. Having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift. Not one I would choose, but we do not choose our gifts, remember? We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. Single friends, your singleness is not a curse. You are not incomplete. But in Christ, you are loved, you are known, you are whole. So let's honor God in our singleness and hope in him. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you that it's in Christ. Your grace is always sufficient. And Father, I pray, Lord, that that would be a truth that we wouldn't just know in our heads, but that, God, that we would know in our hearts. And Father, I especially pray that for my single friends who are in this room here today. That, God, it is a difficult journey. It is a lonely journey. It's a frustrating journey. And Father, I would pray that you would meet us with that grace in those moments. That, God, that we would come and seek and be able to experience an intimacy and trust in you that we could experience in no other way. That, God, that you would provide a deep and lasting joy for the world to see that it's not my relational status, it's not who I'm married to that defines who I am, but, Father, it is you. And, God, for some of us here who just 
are wounded and hurting, hurting and, and maybe even ashamed a bit of just kind of our dating past and history, they got help us to also know that it's in Christ we're forgiven, we are redeemed, we are restored, we are made clean. So God, if any of us are just kind of dealing with that guilt and shame, Father, would you free us from that and help us experience the joy that comes with the cross? And God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church. That God, I really do pray that you would help us to be a community that would have both married and single people loving each other well, celebrating each other well, building each other up in Christ. That, Father, that this would be such a powerful testament to a world that is so hungry. God, help us to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray.